Hello, welcome to I Love Rock and Roll. I'm Ken Krantz. Uh, Chip couldn't be here today, but with me uh, as co-host, returning, very funny comedian, one of my good friends, Max Antonucci. What's up, Ken? Thanks for having me again. I love this show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing this. How's everything going? It's going good. I'm, uh, you know... It's a Thursday morning, right? It's Thursday. Right. I lose track of the days. <laughs> it's Thursday morning. I'm currently sober, so I'm uh, just going I, day by day. I was just going to say, you, you were just telling me off air how you quit smoking weed, and then you opened up with the highest sounding sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, you know, and when I say day by day, it makes it sound like I have like a crippling drug addiction. It's just like, yeah, no, I just smoked too much. Weed. You're smoking weed. I was smoking too much weed. I smoked myself dumb, so I'm trying to get my brain back. All right. Well, I don't know that this show is going to do much to help with that. But <laughs> thank you for uh, thanks for thanks for having me. Thanks I'm for excited. filling in. I, I'm excited. Uh, so our guest today is um, a, a he's a member of the Canadian rock band The Trues out of Ontario, Canada. Uh, welcome, John Angus McDonald, to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, no problem. Um, so you guys are back on tour right now, correct? Yeah, we leave on uh, Monday. I'm still home right now. We leave Monday for the first U.S. date. Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing about you know two weeks, a little over two weeks, just going to go from the East Coast over to Chicago. And just I think it's about 12 dates. Yes, and you're going to be at um, you're going to be at City Winery, uh, yeah. in New York City, uh, on Wednesday. I want to say it's the 25th. That sounds right. That does sound. Yeah, I, I can. Oh, yeah. I, I got can it right. That. Let's go with that. <laughs> um, let me see. I think that's right. Yes. Yes, I'm looking. Okay, you're looking. I got. You it. got it. The 25th. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about um, how how COVID affected your tour and, and what it's like now trying to get back on the road. Well, this is our first trip across the border uh, in like almost three years. I mean, we did this little cruise thing that left from Miami. So we flew down there, but but that, that was it. That was like a year ago. So this is our first time, like, you know, driving across the border to do a bunch of shows and we never would normally leave it that long. It just was really hard to get anything on the books and, uh, and planned when things kept opening and closing, like the border stayed closed for almost two years. Like you just, you couldn't go unless you had some emergency reason. And I don't think as much as we all love rock and roll, I'm not sure if playing a show is an emergency reason, according to the U S government um or the canadian government so um we just didn't get to do anything and, and we also you know like everybody else and when the curtain of covid came down in march of 2020 we just sat around for two or three months while everything just fell off the calendar you know yep. we we play like 60 to 100 shows a year at minimum and then on busy years it's more than that um and we just sat it was the most depressing i mean never mind the news and how depressing that was but like just to watch everything fall apart every single day just brought more bad news. It was just a terrible thing, you know? Um, so it just took a little while to get things back, but I feel like we just did a summer like this past summer that, that felt 
like 90% of the way back, at least up here in Canada. We played a lot of festivals that were at full mm-hmm. capacity. We did like a mostly sold out um, t- like tour of our own, a headlining tour of our own in the early summer. Uh, so yeah, we're hoping that we'll more of the same vibes when we, when we cross the border next week. Yeah, it's, it was, um, so Max and I are both, uh, stand-up comedians and, right. um, it's a little, it was a little discouraging, uh, to find out how non-essential you actually are. Right. Like, well, yeah, I think that's true. And it's also not true because like binge watching went through the roof, you know, it actually is essential for like the human soul not at the risk of sounding cheesy, but like people need entertainment and art to give life purpose and, uh, you know, and like to really fill them up, but they just couldn't get it live, which is the best way to get it. So anyway, I'm, I'm hopefully I'm bolstering your point, <laughs> not negating. but I, I'm in the same boat. Like, yeah, we are completely non-essential, you know, like, you know, third responders, fourth responder. We're like, we're down the list. Yes. You know, you need other, you need other things first. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were, uh, we were the absolute last thing to, uh, to get back up and running. Yeah. But you're right. I, it is, it is something that, that people desperately needed. Yeah. That's, we've noticed since we've been back that, it's, it's been like, I, you know what it is? It's that nobody's taking it for granted. And that includes us because I'm, you know, you guys have probably been doing this for a while. And I, I certainly have, you know, as far as playing live, you get to a place of like just slight complacency, even if you don't realize you're doing it. Um, you know, it just sort of creeps in. You know, like, I've done this a hundred times. I've done this thousands of times, whatever it is. Uh, there's no more of that, you know, every show, you know, feels like it could be the last again because you just don't know. We've had so much stuff get canceled and so much stuff come and go that uh, we just don't take any show for granted anymore. And I feel like the audiences are, are kind of feeling the same vibe. Yeah. Yeah. That That's a good attitude to have too. Um, how, how long did it take? How many shows did it take for you to start feeling um, like, like a performer? Like I know, I know for me, it took me, it took me somewhere between 10 and 15 shows after that initial lockdown where, where we went four or five months without any performing. It mm-hmm. took me like a good 10 or 15 shows before I even felt like, Oh yeah, I'm, I, I know what I'm doing again. Yeah. We, I'm, I don't think this works for comedy, but we pivoted into a lot of like streaming things. It's, it's not fun, but like, as far as our chops went, like we were like calling our singer was checking in with our fans once a week on mm-hmm. Instagram live. And he was just playing an hour of music. People loved that. And it was just a way for, for him to stay sane and for him to keep his sort of chops together. And then we started doing some band stuff again, not the most inspiring gig <laughs> to, to play for an iPhone camera. No, uh, even if you know, there's a thousand people on the other end of it, you don't really feel it. Um, there's only so many applaud emojis that you, know, <laughs> that you can see and feel anything about. Uh, but we kept our chops a little bit together, even though it's not the same thing. Uh, I want to say like maybe, maybe half a dozen shows to get in the, like the real swing. But, um, we were like coasted on love for those first few because it was just such a great, it was so great to be back at it. So even if we weren't in our top shape, we were like feeling great, you know? So I, I'm sure it's different with stand up. I mean, it's such a one man army, uh, thing, you know, whereas like, uh, we're a gang. So yeah. it's, uh, different but you know how, how about like 
Yeah. How, how, how were you rusty? Like in what ways did you guys feel like you had to get back up well, to snuff? For me, it was like I was living in L.A. during the time and L.A. was way more locked down than New York, surprisingly. So in New York, uh, I and I'm from the East Coast originally. I started out here and then I was living out there. And within a couple of months, they were doing outdoor shows in New York. So it, I was back in L.A. and they weren't allowing any sort of outdoor gatherings. Comics were calling the cops on other comics for oh, putting God. on shows. It was I, like I forgot about so, that. It was so ridiculous, especially because like the science was already out where it was like, you know, it doesn't really spread outdoors. And I'm in like the most beautiful place in the country weather wise. And no yeah. one was doing anything. So I've, I flew back here for a couple of months during the summertime just to get back into the swing of things. And knocking the rust off was like kind of difficult because, you know, you went from, you know, trying to do as many shows as you can before that, even like with stand up, you pretty much for the first 10 years or so, you're just saying yes to every opportunity, even though, you know, sometimes you're just like walking into something awful. Uh, but you still do it because you want to get those chops. And also as a comedian, sometimes it's funny to have those stories where it's like, oh, yeah, I performed at a halfway house for a bunch of people yeah. who absolutely hated it. Uh but coming out and then like, you know, doing all that, it was it was very fun. And like you do kind of every show that you get, you're like, oh, yeah, you're very like grateful for it. And it was a very humbling experience. But the Zoom shows, that was harder because you are working off of reaction. So at the beginning, it was just like people in the chats just being like, ha, 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 ha. They didn't have actual jokes. So you tell your joke and then you're looking at the chat just like, are they laughing? Is anyone saying anything? So there's no rhythm to it at all. Yeah, there, it was terrible. And also you're trying to like write new jokes and like, you know, yeah. you know, during that time, it was like. Were you doing like, co were you doing COVID material like material about the pandemic? I personally wasn't just because to me, I was just so over it within a few weeks where I was like, I don't want to hear about this anymore. It's kind of like. Yeah. For me, politics, I just don't like hearing about yeah, anything. It's such a hot potato. It didn't have to. It's weird that, that you talk about a disease and say politics, you know, it's yeah. like, or, a, you know, a virus and politics. It's like it really doesn't have anything to do with politics, except it has everything to do with politics. Right. Exactly. Reason. Right. Which yeah. is, I mean, par for the course these days, everything is politics. And I just my mind just shuts off immediately for all of it, because I'm like, man, this is just going to give me a lot of undue stress. Not fun. It's, but like the. It's the Zoom shows, once they finally figured out like, oh, OK, we can like whoever the moderator is, they'll mute. Uh, you know, if someone's like talking, they'll mute that mic. But like everyone else can laugh. So you say a joke and there's laughter and it's I don't want to say it's close to a live experience right. because you can't just you can't match it. Yeah. But at least you're getting some sort of instant reaction. Yeah. Albeit I, slightly time delayed. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I um I remember the the first Zoom show I did. I don't I don't have a I don't have an I don't have an Apple computer, uh, board of the a Mac, um, and uh, so all of the like Apple emojis that were coming over weren't like I couldn't even see them. They were just coming up little squares. <laughs> oh, cool. So I was like, I don't even know 
I don't so know if they're it, laughing. Could have been like a middle finger. Yeah, like, I don't, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if they're saying that. this is the worst fucking guy I've ever heard in my life. Or, you know, <laughs> it's a plane crashing into a mountain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just could no be thumbs idea. up or down. You'll never know. <laughs> I, I did. I did. Uh, I I talked about covid right off the bat because um, to me it was. It was like an elephant in the room. So when I started going back to those outdoor shows, if I saw a comic just get up and do the same set that I'd see them do a thousand times before the pandemic, mm -hmm. I'm like, how are you not acknowledging what's happening in the world right now? You know, and not that you got to make your entire set about it, but I feel like you leave because everybody's thinking like we're sitting outside in a parking lot on folding yeah. chairs, 10 feet apart. None of this is normal. The first one I saw was like the other one that everybody saw was the Chappelle direct to Instagram or whatever he did. That sort of short one he did about George Floyd. Mm -hmm. But that was the first time I saw the outdoor seating thing. Like I hadn't experienced it. I'm not in that world. And um, but he didn't talk about it because he had better. He had more important things right. to talk about. Yeah. Uh, but that was, that was super powerful, but I hadn't even seen um, it, the, the setup at all, but you're right. It's like, how do you not acknowledge how weird this is? We did a drive-in show in the summer of August of 2020. It was our first time back on stage since March. And we were in the middle of a tour in March when we went home. Um, and then August was the next time we got on stage, never had a gap that long. Right. And not, we didn't even really get on stage. We, we did get on stage, but it was at a drive-in. We played mm -hmm. for 200 vehicles. <laughs> Like, and they couldn't, people couldn't get out of their vehicles. They weren't allowed to get out of their vehicles. People were very freaked out still. There still wasn't a vaccine. There was no like end in sight. So nobody wanted to get it. And the hospitals were still really full. So no, nobody even left their cars, but uh, people really did, you know, lay on the horns and like flash the beams and everything. Like you got a reaction, but it was the weirdest thing, you know, just the weirdest thing. And how do you not acknowledge that? We actually took the stage to that song, uh, in cars didn't <laughs> like that was our walk-on music just to sort of somewhat acknowledge how weird this is you know yeah and like for me I, and i'm sure ken as well because we're both like music fans and like I, as comedians it's one of those things where like a lot of comedians wish they were rock stars so like performing outdoors and like some cool venues was actually like when when it started happening i was like I like this a lot because, I mean, I'm also like an outdoors guy. I do a lot of hiking and stuff. So it felt very cool. And I like even during the pandemic, I was like, man, I really hope they keep doing outdoor venues after the pandemic because it was, you know, there were very rare to come across a comedy show that was outdoors unless you were doing some sort of, you know, big comedy festival. Right. Like they usually don't they didn't do outdoor shows shows before. No. So it was kind of like a neat experience to just kind of like have that. And I'm sure if you had performed outdoor shows before, like festivals and things like that, yeah. it's, it's such a, like, I don't know, just as a comedian, it feels very cool, especially during the pandemic when it was like, people were coming out to shows. They really wanted to go out to comedy shows. So like people before that you would do, even indoor shows, you would go to a show and people are like, you know, they got barked in off the street. Someone corralled them in to be like, oh, yeah, we have, you know, drink specials here. And people didn't really want to go see, you know, you'd get people who don't really care to see a comedy show. They're just there to kill some time. Right. During the pandemic or after 
more of the people coming in, they're like, no, I want to go to a comedy show or no, I want to go to this. So it was like, you're getting more engaged of an audience who really wants to be there and they want you to succeed and they want to laugh, which was really a great, um, you know, turnaround. Yeah. Well, playing outdoors is sort of of a perennial thing for, for musicians, you know, every festival season, at least half of the summer Mm -hmm. shows are held outdoors, maybe even more than half. Like, you know, once you get into festivals, it's all, always outdoors and it is great and it's funny you say that comedians want to be rock stars because every rock star i know thinks they're funny yes so it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a two-way street it's, yeah for, it's sure. for sure i think every rock star is a frustrated comic and every comic so i i know for me if i had even uh like an iota of musical talent i i would not be i wouldn't be doing comedy i think it's the ballsier performance choice like if you know you want to perform, it takes a lot more balls to go out and be a stand-up comedian than it does to get with your gang. Cause every, every defeat is sort of shared in a band, mm-hmm. you know, like I remember seeing Jim Carrey, I got invited to this uh, walk of fame thing and it was held up in Canada. It was like Canada's walk of fame. So he got a star the same as they do in Hollywood, but it's out, it's in Toronto. And uh, he, I was invited to attend and he was getting his star. So he got up and, gave a whole like speech and told a story and the story he told, he, he grew up like not far from where I live. I live in Hamilton. He grew up in Burlington, which is like 20 minutes down the, down the highway. And he told a story about driving up cause he got a gig in North Bay, which is like six hours North. And it was in the winter. So it was six hours in a snowstorm and he borrowed his like family vehicle and drove six hours through the snowstorm and white knuckling it, you know, like very treacherous, taking his life in his hand, in his hands. Gets there, plays for like the sound guy and some drunks, bombs, and then drives <laughs> five, six hours straight back through the same snowstorm. And I'm like, man, that takes some grit because I, I've played for sound guys and drunks. Yeah, in our early days, we all have. It's the kind of part part of the course. But then you're back with your boys in in your vehicle and you're laughing about it. And you're like, that guy was a dick, and you're like, you're joking and laughing and you're making light of it. It's just you and your thoughts, you know, yes. after a failed. Uh, Man, that takes some grit. Yeah, I've I've had quite a few of those from my early days where you're just coming back and you're like, what am I doing with my life? You know, and you and then you like now with social media, you go on and you see people you grew up with. They're like buying these beautiful houses and they're like, you know, married, have kids. And I'm just like bombing in Harlem in front of, you know, like six people. (laughs) And so someone's like, it was crazy. Yeah. Man, it's, I can only imagine, you know, I've never even tried playing a solo gig and I've always been a guitar player in a band, you know? So, uh, you know, it's, it's, I imagine it's a lot to shoulder sometimes. Um, How many, how many bands were you in before, before you find this one that takes off? This is it. This is my first band. My my brother's the lead singer and we, you know, uh, I'm the lead guitar player and we, our childhood friend Jack has been with us. We got together in like the late nineties when we were in high school and like decided to be in a band like Final Tap and every other band. We've gone through a lot of drummers, um, <laughs> but uh, we're on a, you know, we have one that, that was with us for like 14 years, and, but we've been together for over 20. So um, yeah, it, it's my only band. We sort that, of learned oh, that's to amazing. Do it together. We learned to write songs cause we weren't any good at that at first. Cause you never are. And we learned our, to play, we learned to perform, we sort of learned it all together, which like kind of leads to like a little bit of like people compensate for each other's shortcomings. And there's like, people say that that can hobble you a little bit, but I, I know, I think some of the best bands also did it that way. 
um, because you just sort of forge a chemistry that can't be replicated by a group of like session players, right. guns for hire, you know? Um, so yeah, it's the only band I've really known. Oh, wow. That's, that's, uh, that's a pretty, uh, incredible success story. Yeah. It took a while. I mean, like, yeah. you know, we didn't get even get a record out until 2003 and we started in 1997. I was 15 though. So I was, you know, it's the right time to like toss it all off and, and dive in, you know, it's the right age. Um, so I was in my early twenties by the time we got a record deal and got a record out, but yeah, it's a lot of dive bars, a lot of shitty gigs, a lot of everything, travel, everything, sleepless nights, all that shit. And is it just you two? Are you the only siblings or? We're the only siblings, but we have right now we have a five piece band. So my brother and I, uh, our friend, Jack, we've been together since the beginning. Our drummer is Chris. Um, and we have a keyboard player that plays with us live named Jeff Hazel. That's awesome. So I know uh, if there's one thing that rock history has taught us, it's that bands with brothers, uh, they always get along great. It's, it's usually pretty, <laughs> it's usually you never hear about any behind the scenes strife. Oh yeah. Um, there's, it's all rainbows and buttercups. <laughs> Those Gallagher brothers, they really love each other. Yeah, they do. They do. There there's, uh, um, uh, there's still my favorite follow on Twitter is Liam Gallagher. Because just antagonizing his brother, his brother never responds. It just yeah. feels like one-way bullying. I also <laughs> love that he follows nobody. Like he, oh, I didn't. I don't no, even know that I noticed no one. that. And after like his his profile is like biblical, epic, yeah. otherworldly, inspired. <laughs> the last thing is humble. <laughs> he's that. great. He's. I feel like he's one of the last uh, true great rock stars that behaves yeah. like rock stars behaved when I was growing up. There, but there's also something about the way the British approach that stuff. It's funny. Like it's not like. I don't know. It doesn't seem like he's like a, like such an asshole. Like it seems like it's funny. You it's, know what I mean? Like whereas if an American or Canadian got carried on that way, you'd be like, what a dick. But yeah. like, I don't know. He just, it seems kind of tongue in cheek the whole time. Yes. Yeah. Like he's he intention. He's intentionally trolling. Yes. Like yeah, he's, exactly. he's aware. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There seems to be a little bit of heart at the center of it. I don't know what it is, but he, for some reason he doesn't piss me off. Like he I'm not like, God damn it. You know? Uh, whereas other people that kind of carry on like that drive me nuts, but. Do um, but do how do you and your brother do you guys get along or, or are you breaking that? No, I say by and large we get along. Yeah, you know, um, do you guys have siblings? I mean, yeah, nobody can nobody can get under your skin like a sibling, right? Yes. They just yep. know all the buttons to push. So that's that's the problem. Uh, but um, you know, we I think when I hear about other, you know, the Robinson brothers are friends of ours and like Rich. Yes, uh, yeah, I want to talk to you about player. that. Yeah, he, he produced some tracks on the last record, and I've known Rich for a long time, like fifteen years, and he can't believe how well we get along compared to him and his brother because they they can't see eye to eye on anything. It's like they're polar opposites. Uh, but we we sort of generally see eye to eye. I mean, when we when things blow up, it tends to get a little ugly, but it's not like it's not like an everyday occurrence, right? You know, and hopefully. Hopefully we're just like, you know, sort of like humbled enough by what we're doing to, to know that that's like, we can just do other things. You know, it's not like nobody's got a gun to our head to right. say, yeah. stay together, you know? So like we, we still believe in what we're doing and we still make both, you know, all of us make a living off of it. So we're kind of like, you know, tr- try to keep all that bigger perspective stuff in mind and not let day-to-day drama like derail your, your journey kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a great attitude. 
Yeah, the the Robinson brothers, man. It's it's um it's too bad because they're such a kick ass band. Yeah. They they Yeah, they're ha- one of the best. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I don't I don't think they get I don't think they get nearly the respect that they deserve. Like I don't understand how they're not in the rock and roll hall of fame. Hmm. I don't get yeah. I mean who's there's more certain, there's a certain amount just from you know, not uh, there's a certain amount of not playing the game that they do. Yeah. You know, and I feel like that's sort of that's the people that they are. They have a lot of integrity and they they really th- see things a certain way and they want to stick to that. And they're not going to jump through the industry hoops that might be required to achieve something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, th- that's all I'll say about that. From from what I can observe, I think that's what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah, they they had a good run of albums in in the '90s that uh, I think any band's ever had. Like those first four albums were, yeah. they were all just so fucking good. They're incredible, and and now they're back out doing their first record as like a, a bit of a victory lap tour. But we we opened a couple of those dates mm-hmm. this summer, and they were they're on fire, top form. I mean, very few singers that are like Chris's age can still belt it out like Chris can. And they're not changing their tunings and it's all in the original keys. And he's still singing great and they're still playing great. It's, yes. it, it feels like anything, but uh, it feels like anything but a victory lap, to be honest. It yeah. Pretty vital still. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I saw them. Uh, I saw them here in uh, Jersey do that album. Um, and it was, you know, I bought the tickets two years before the show happened. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, yeah. like everyone else exactly. these days. Um, but yeah, I thought they were great. And it was the first time I'd seen the Black Crows in a while where um, they they weren't super jammy. And yeah. Um, yeah. I left they left me wanting more instead of looking at my watch to to see how much longer I thought I had in, in a little yeah. bit. So it was nice to see them kind of um get back to, you know. I uh, feel like Chris really got that Grateful Dead thing out of his system with the Brotherhood. Yeah. You know, having spent like almost a decade just doing that exclusively. I think he was ready to ready to get back to his Steve Marriott. Yes. You know, Rod, really Stewart. Rod Stewart kind of roots. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were. It's funny when they came out when that first album came out, and then everybody was like, "Oh, they're just a Stones knockoff." And I was like, "No, they're a Faces knockoff. It's totally, yeah. they're yeah. not even a knockoff." But you could just tell that's who that's who their um, inspiration yeah, was. Totally, totally. And the other thing is, you know, like it's hard to be legitimate when you're playing that kind of throwback music. Like it tends to come off really cheesy for the most part, or really like been done mm-hmm. you know but to them they still sounded vital it's like it's like they came by it really naturally I, I don't know if it's a function of being from the south or what but like when they when they dove into that stuff it had a real authenticity and it still does those records sound classic yes yeah i still think that um southern harmony and musical companion to me is still one of like the rare perfect rock albums yeah i totally agree with you man um and then i saw you guys uh in the early in the early two thousands, you you worked with um you worked with Ian McLoggin from Faces. Yeah, that wasn't even in the early two thousands. That was like in two thousand and twelve. We oh, didn't okay. actually um we didn't actually record in the same room. Unfortunately, he he was lives well, he was living in Austin, Texas, up until he passed away. And uh, we were working with a, a good friend of ours, collaborator who produced a lot of stuff. Um, 
guy named Gordy Johnson. And he, he used McLagan on so much stuff on all these sessions, but, but we had recorded our bit in Toronto and he got uh, McLagan to put it on down in Texas. So we never did really get to work sort of together, but right. yeah, he's on one but of our tracks. That's still, you got him on one of your records. That's, that's. Yeah. Uh... And on that same EP, it was like this live off the floor EP we did called thank you. And I'm sorry. We actually had rich, um, Robinson and Eddie Harsh from the Crows also played, but they played live on the floor with us on a couple of songs. And Ed has since passed away. Yeah. And, you know, I think he's one of the most talented keyboard players that ever. He was I, Earth. I still get uh, my favorite Crow song ever was um, "Descending" on a oh, yeah. and that opening piano bit still like I still get goosebumps every single time I hear it incredible yeah he's incredible i mean the guy could could drift from like you know jazz to like classical to like boogie woogie to blues to he could play anything he really could and, and it was always a fresh take on it yeah you know, it was never just like stock licks he was, he was really amazing yes yeah i was i was surprised i was surprised when they um when they uh i don't know i don't know actually i don't even know what happened i don't know if they fired him from the band or he left on his own but yeah. I, I i was i was surprised that they didn't keep him because i i always thought he was their secret weapon he was but you know eddie had sort of his own demons you yeah. know i don't you don't have to speak know. on it no i just yeah. i'm just as i was saying it i realized i didn't i didn't know what the deal was i just always assumed they fired him but i didn't yeah i had no idea um but um, so you guys have uh, you got a new record out? Yeah, came out just over a year ago, November of 2021. Uh, called Wanderer. Yep. And then uh, was that recorded during? Were you guys working during lockdown? Yeah, I feel like the only two things we're talking about today are the pandemic and the oh. black roads, but <laughs> it involves both those things. Again, um, no, we were in December of 2019. Uh, we went to Nashville where Rich was living at the time because we've always wanted to to do something together. So we just, we kind of just hired him to produce three songs mm -hmm. just to sort of as like an experiment, not really knowing where it would lead, but it turned out to be the beginning of this record. We did the three songs in just like th in three days. It was pretty quick. Came back to Canada, showed it to our label. The, everybody was like, yeah, this is great. Go on back and do six more or whatever it was. And we were going to do that in late March of 2020. That's what, that's how the timing worked out. And then they closed the border. We all stayed home and eventually just had to let go of the idea. Cause we just couldn't get down there. He couldn't get up here. Just kind of had to like pivot at that point. And, uh, it took until the summer for studios to open and be comfortable letting bands back into record. So we just kind of booked sessions in little windows whenever we could. And, uh, we wrote a ton of songs. I mean, like we wrote, a lot of songs. I mean, it's one of the only outlets that we had during the pandemic. So we wrote songs like this, you know, like we got on with people and got on with each other and just like sort of hash things out and then put this, put the record together whenever we could in windows, you know, it was like July and August and November, whenever we could find the time. And then it took until the following November to, to finally get it put out. Yeah. How, how frustrating is it? How frustrating is it to, um, to write songs? and know that you've got something cool that you want people to hear that you want people to hear live but you can't take them out to play them live just yet well i think that's why it took so long to get the record out it just felt kind of pointless to like drop a collection of tunes and then just watch it vanish into the streaming ether you mm -hmm. know and to like never be heard from again <laughs> 
uh, one of our one of our best you know foots forward for promoting our music is to play it for people. You know? Right. Um, so th- that's why we waited, and then ultimately we were able to like you know get a tour together the following spring because Omicron came right on the heels of releasing it. We're like, it looks like we're finally in the clear. We're going to drop it in November. And then like by December, they were shutting everything down again. And we had a tour booked for January, February, which had to get blown out. It got rescheduled for May and June. And then that's sort of when like touring for the record started. And it took us all the way through to like, you know, September. Wow. Yeah. I, I found like, I found it was frustrating. I don't know. Like I actually found, uh, during during covid like i got inspired like there was i got inspired to write there there was so much happening every day and it felt like the world was changing hour by hour yeah and um it was it was a lot it was a lot to work with for for a writer but i would get frustrated because i would i would write these whole bits in my head and i'd be like well i there's nothing i can do with it yeah I know it's, I mean, it's, we, we've got enough material for three records, but I mean, we're not going to do it. We're not going to put them all out. It just seems like a waste, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to get people's attention for one song, Yeah. you know, let alone, uh, like unleashing 30 at a time. Um, but we do have a huge backlog cause we, we found we were writing a lot too. And it was, it just came down to that. Like, you know, we were desperate for an outlet. Um, none of us were going into like work, zoom work or whatever you know none of us were we had to make our own work you know and i'm sure you guys can relate to that you just you're we're all self-starters right like you know it's like things happen when we make things happen right you know so uh that was one thing we could control so um growing up in canada so you and your brother what uh what music did you listen to in the house who what inspired you to pick up a guitar and give it a shot um, we were one of those rare bands that mostly grew up on our, I don't know if this is that rare, but mostly grew up on our parents' music. Mm-hmm. Like, so we, I was kind of coming of age in the mid nineties, you know, like when grunge was everything and we loved those bands, but loved REM and Nirvana. And, but, but at the same time we loved Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and the first Jimi Hendrix record and yeah. the first Zeppelin record and stuff we just discovered from our parents' turntables. Um, so it was kind of a, a mix of the, of those two things that wanted to make us, you know, pick up and play. Um, did you have, uh, who, who were your guitar heroes growing up? Well, Jeff Beck, mm-hmm. Jeff Beck, yeah. you know, rest, in, rest peace. in peace. Um, probably my favorite guitarist. I mean, I, you know, the guy was such an acrobat when it came to the sounds he could get out of that thing. Um, you know, other than that, it was like the, the usual suspects, Hendrix and Joe Perry, you know, Rich Robinson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really liked Peter Buck, too. I didn't it didn't have to be like a showboat guy for me to love it. I love George Harrison, Keith Richards and, you know, uh, Lowell George. So, yeah, all, all that stuff, you know. I mean, if I'm being honest, like the first guy that captured my imagination, I was like 12 years old, was Slash because he was like a cartoon character. You yes. know, like you could love him the way you love like Iron Man or like <laughs> Superman or something, you know, like he was such a caricature of, of a rock star and like, you know, his sound was so good and, and he, he aged well, you know, of all the sunset strip yeah. and hair metal, like his stuff was pretty classic and it to this day still sounds amazing. Yes. So I think that was like, and he made me want to play Les Pauls and Gibson's because 
through him, I discovered like Joe Perry and Jimmy Page and all the places that he came from. And then through those guys, you discover like, you know, Buddy Guy and Muddy Waters and, and all the guys, Robert Johnson, that they came from. And then you realize it's just a big continuum. Yes. Isn't that, that is, that's the, um, I miss that feeling like when I was a kid and you, and, and my older brother would turn me on to a record and then you would love it so much. And then you, you'd, I would, you know, I would read like my brother turned me on to the stones at an early age. Yep. And then you would read interviews in Rolling Stone with Mick Jagger and he's talking about Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. So then you'd start working backwards. Yep. And I, I sort of miss that um, like thrill of discovering uh, older music that I never would have known about. Yeah. Well, it's a finite thing. You know, there's only so I mean, there is a lot of it, but like if you do it for enough times, you're going to. You're going to get around to almost everything, <laughs> you know, um, especially when it comes to recorded music, you know, it yes. has a limit. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the other th I think the biggest problem of our time is like modern discovery because there's a hundred thousand tracks being uploaded a day to streaming music. Yeah. So like the task that lays ahead is like people that could figure out how to just, how to make a new band get discovered, you know, how to make a new artist get discovered. It seems like an impossible thing, you know, like, and and I think the data kind of suggests that like catalogs picking up steam because it's just like, it's just, it's better organized. You know what I mean? Like people are like, there was, there was only so much classic rock, you know what I mean? And like, I guess I'll just go back and listen to Skinner again yeah. <laughs> because I can't even imagine trying to find a new Southern rock band to listen to when there's like 60,000 of them. And like, what's the best one? And you know, all this kind of stuff. I don't know if this problem faces comedy too, but you know, it's like uh, there's like an overload of uh, of music right now, and whoever cracks the code of discovery is probably going to like own the industry. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know how you. Uh, I mean, there's no. I mean, it used to be. I'm, I'm, I, I grew up like I, I remember when MTV first came out. So it just used to be, you got a video on MTV and you were set. Yeah. Uh, and, and we, we came up on the tail end of that in Canada. It's called much music. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, but it was a national station. It was like the most important radio station, even though it was a video channel, but getting added there and heavy rotation for the first time was an absolute game changer. As hard as we were working, we were doing like hundred, 200 shows a year. Everything started changing once we were on that network because yeah. suddenly all the shows were sold out and all the offers were getting better. Uh, it, I don't know if there's that one thing anymore. There's lots of little avenues you can get you can break on TikTok and you can break on YouTube and you could get lucky with a streaming placement on a cool playlist, or you might get lucky with like a film and television placement, but there's not one thing we're all looking at at the same time, uh, anymore. Yeah. So that that's both good and bad. I mean, it's going to make for more niche, you know, and, and maybe the middle class will grow a little bit of middle class of artists. Uh, but it's going to be hard to like mint a, mint a superstar you know yes yeah and i i miss the i miss the thrill of the hunt like like there's an album that you you know that's rare like i remember um when i when i was growing up in the 80s and 90s i guess it was, it was in the 90s uh you they didn't even um they didn't sell faces albums in america they they were out of print here so right. there, there was no, but I would, I would hear, I heard about them, 
you know, like, and, you know, maybe uh, sometimes they play like Stay With Me on the radio and you're like, yeah. oh, that's Rod Stewart's band. But yeah. you couldn't buy any of the albums here. And then there was like one shop that sold imports and like a batch of imports would come in once a month or something. And then you yeah. can go there. And it was like, I'd have to look around everywhere. And then eventually you'd find somebody that sold imports. But if you told that kid, you know, if you told yourself, there's going to be one day when no matter what it is, you can find it with like three clicks. Like you'd be like, that sounds like an awesome world. Yes. But like, it's just like the unforeseen consequence of that, you know, is like, uh, because you can access it. Like, and I could probably access like multiple specials or standups from yeah. you guys, like in yeah. three seconds now. Yeah. yeah. Please, please the problem don't. is how do you get to new people? I mean, how do you cut through the fact that everybody's got that much? Yeah. yeah. So Max, go, you figure it out. Well, no, I, I mean, I would say like for stand up, it's a little um, better now because, you know, growing up, there's just like a few different names that everyone knows, you know, like Carlin Pryor, you know, and all, all this stuff. And there's only like a few, but now there's like way more. And I think it's a good thing that you could go on YouTube and there's more comics that are like really good who never got, mainstream so to speak success now you go on youtube and their videos have you know their specials have like millions of views because other comics are promoting it so i think it, it's better it works better for stand-ups as opposed to like musicians i say musicians it's probably a lot harder because right. i feel like more people try their hands at being musicians than they do being comedians Sure. You know, or or at least the ones I mean, there's a lot of really bad comedians and we we see we've seen them over the years, you know, like, yeah. but but they never they never pass a certain point right. Whereas, like, you know, you could be a, a terrible musician and you create a Spotify account and yeah. not saying it's going to get, you know, like a, a bunch of streams or anything like that. But yeah. I feel like music is way more flooded and harder to stand out than it would be yes. let's say like yeah being a comedian I, yeah. I, I, but, are, but are we in like the golden age of stand-up i feel like it's never been more relevant and more i would say so present yeah than in my lifetime anyway yeah yeah I, I would say so i think so i think so and it, it's easier for us too because it's like a 20 second clip can go viral you know, like like that girl that had the beer thrown out of her. Like she didn't even go viral for for telling a joke. She just had an amazing yeah. reaction. Yeah. Um, and and now she's she got on late night because of a thirty second clip she got on Jimmy Kimmel. Now she's sell, she's selling out clubs. I, I I think it's hard. I got to imagine it's way harder. You know, for for a band to put a clip of them performing up on Instagram and having it. Well, if anything, it's like what you described with the beer or like it's, it's like kids sitting on the corner of their bed that are making songs that are like sh kind of shockingly beyond their years. Like a certain people got discovered that way, like Justin Bieber, a fellow countryman of mine, not, mm -hmm. not my favorite artist, but like, <laughs> but you know, he was just doing something that people related to and yeah. not, they weren't people my age, but there were people that people related to it. The problem you get into like is, you know, when you get like real professionals, like, you know, four or five guys who got the years in and like, they're really good. And like, they don't necessarily want to sit on the edge of their bed and like sing to the camera once a day. I, mean, I don't know. You know, I, maybe it's just entitlement. Maybe we all should be doing that. But, but then again, you're, that's even just more clogging of the fucking pipes. Yeah. You know, yeah. at a certain point. So maybe it just adds to the problem. I don't know. What's the main vehicle for, is this TikTok and YouTube? 
or for, Instagram for stand up, I would say, yeah. I mean, a lot of it now is like Instagram reels or TikTok and YouTube, like especially YouTube, especially for like specials. Like that's a, a good way to kind of like uh, go around the industry, you right. know, because there's a lot of people who like a lot of very talented comedians who weren't getting Netflix specials or they're not getting, you know, any sort of these big name streaming platforms, they're not getting those specials, even though a lot of them are funnier than the stuff that you see that's being put out on these streaming platforms. They're just, for some reason, they're not getting that sort of uh, attention, mainstream attention. And then they just say, fuck it, I'm going to self-produce this and I'm going to put it out on YouTube. And next thing you know, they're getting millions of views within the first couple of weeks. And then to me, I think that's even better because you're, you know, getting your audience and you're giving them something for free, which is leading to more tickets being sold because they're sharing it with their friends and everyone wants to, it's the same thing with music. When you hear a band, you can't wait to tell someone about it. And you're like, Oh my God, this band's so great. It's the same thing with comedy where they're like, Oh man, this guy is so funny. You got to watch it. And next thing you know, now they're selling out, you know, little um, theaters and things like that. Yep or even bigger places. And, you know, you see that a lot and it used to be, you know, like circle back to like, you know, doing late night stuff that used to be the thing, you know, you go on, you know, Carson or Letterman or, you know, Conan, that was always the big thing. And that would lead to, you know, developing more of a fan base. Now it's the opposite. No one really watches those shows. They're getting everything from TikTok and Instagram. Yeah. They're getting it once it's broken. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That is interesting, man. I mean, now I, I have to ask you, uh, cause you seem like comedy fan. Who's your favorite Canadian comedian. That's a long list, man. Like Canada's punches way above its weight in comedy. Like I, I, it's kind of like, it's unbelievable, but I, I grew up, you know, I grew up like, I really find Mike Myers hilarious. I don't, I know it's like stupid, like toilet humor for the most part, but so even looking at that guy sometimes cracks me up. And of course, like I grew up a Jim Carrey fan too, but <laughs> as far as like stand up stuff, Norm MacDonald. Norm oh, is my all time favorite. <laughs> he's he's, a, he's yeah, amazing. He's like he, he's amazing. And like since, unfortunately, since his passing sort of like, you know, you're getting flooded with these short little clips that just highlight his like subtle genius, you know, like uh, God, he was quick in his own way. And he played this kind of stupid guy. Yeah. Which, made, which let him get away with all kinds of stuff. I don't think for a minute he was stupid. No, but he was like very the fact, intelligent. The fact that he would play this sort of like, I'm from Canada, so I don't really know much. And then the most cutting comment you ever heard. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it was just like a, a great little character that he invented he he was uh he was brilliant i you i can go down wormhole i can go down norm mcdonald wormholes on youtube uh all day long and he's from ottawa which i don't know if you guys know anything I, i love i have a lot of friends in ottawa a lot of people that i really like in ottawa but it's known as sort of like a very straight city like a very uh conservative city it's the center of power in canada right it's the capital it's where the prime minister lives and I don't know for somebody that zany to come out of that town. I just find it like kind of hilarious. <laughs> he had a, he had a joke. I, I heard him tell a joke on his show one. It was just a throwaway line, but I still think about it all the time. And it just makes me laugh where he said, uh, said something like, oh, 
I wonder who's buried in the grave of the guy that invented the old switcheroo. Yeah. Yeah, he's amazing. I even liked his last special. It was a bit dark to watch it, but the one that he filmed on yeah. his yeah. phone or whatever, I really enjoyed that. That was, that, like, was, that was hard to watch. That was hard, was to, hard watch to watch for but me. It's like that whole one line after one line after one line thing. I, You know, Mitch Hedberg, mm-hmm. is it Hedberg yeah. or Hedberg? Yeah. He kind of did the yeah. same thing, like all these non sequiturs, just like, like here's one. And here's something about something totally different. Like it's just non sequitur after non sequitur after non sequitur. I, I thought it's just a certain rhythm and it's when it's done well, it's hilarious. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, he, uh, if you've never, if you've never seen it, if you're listening and you've never watched it, go on YouTube and do a search for, uh, him telling his moth joke. On, yeah, on, no, on I love it. Yeah, I was way too long to to get into. But if you're listening and you've never seen it, that that's one of the funniest uh, things yeah. I've ever. Ken, seen. I think you should recite it word for word. <laughs> well, let's see. Let's give it a shot. I also <laughs> did. Did you ever see the clip? I actually happened to just be home one night watching Conan when when I was like a teenager, yeah. and um, he was on with um. Oh, who's that girl from Melrose? Play? Courtney, yeah, no, it's hilarious. Courtney I've seen Thorne that clip. It's where he, she's talking about the movie and the trailer, and yeah, and he's doing the pull quotes from the poster or whatever. He, yeah, he's <laughs> he's making he's making fun of her new movie. It was starring her and Carrot Top, and uh, the name of the says, movie said, was Chairman of the Board. Chairman yeah, of the Board. B-O-R-E-D. Yeah, yeah. Dorn goes that spelled B O R E D. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good oh yeah rest in peace norm he's good so but, you know like martin short grew up in this town that i live in now oh wow uh, and you know so did uh you know the dude uh what was his name G- eugene levy and, and so mm-hmm. and he grew up in this town yeah. and you got like lauren michaels is from toronto and um ivan reitman and you know the, the list goes on and on I, i'm not sure what it is i've heard it analyzed i don't know if it's correct but that canadians are like ultimately just outside the party, you know, like we're at, we're just like at the gates mm-hmm. of the circus. So, we, so sometimes we're good observers, analysts of it, you know? Yeah. Um, and they also write, we also have songwriters, like just relative to our population, you know, you got Robbie Robertson and Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and Gordon mm-hmm. Lightfoot and Leonard Cohen. And like, it's, it's quite a large pool relative to how, you know, our population is smaller than California. Um, and we're a much larger country. Yeah. So I've, I've heard it said that just because we're sort of like naturally observers of the circus, that we become like sort of good uh, regurgitators, you know, of our own little spin on, on things. For sure. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so uh, when you and your brother start this band, mm-hmm. what are you like? What's your wildest dreams? Like, like what if when you first started, what were you like, Hey, if I can just get here, I, that that's, that's, well, good. you know, like in your dreams, it's just like, I'm going to rock a stadium, you know, like whatever it is, but you don't even understand what you're dreaming about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, until you start. But, uh, you know, at the time there was also like those lofty dream goals, but there was also just like, Hey, wouldn't it be great to fill the club in town? I yeah. mean, we grew up in a town of like 10,000 people, a really small place in Nova Scotia called Antigonish. So we'd be like, you know, let's just, let's just put 50 people in that place this weekend and let's put posters up all over town and, and get that done. Um, so that was it, you know, a combination of like, you know, pipe dreams and then just step by step, 
you know, like trying to then go to Halifax and try to do the same thing, which is the main city in Nova Scotia. Eventually that led us to like relocating to like central Ontario, which is where I live now, which is where everybody is. Um, and that's where we sort of set up our like career, you know, cause we managed to find a manager and an agent and get a record deal and, and sort of like make a splash. Uh, but that happened in stages, you know, mm. just from like taking it sort of one, one step at a time. And I saw, I was reading you guys, you opened for the stones. Mm-hmm. What was that must've been like, that was amazing. Uh, yeah. I don't know how your head doesn't explode. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, It was a real dream come true kind of moment. Like, um, you know, we, we had put out our first record, which had like a number one single on it. It got mm-hmm. it, a song called not ready to go. That, that was like, p- put us on the map up here. And, uh, we were following that record up and we were, so pretty omnipresent in like the radio and TV and everything. And we were about to put out our follow-up record to that. And that summer, the stones were rehearsing in Toronto. So they, they, they often do this. They set up and rent a building somewhere in the city and they just rehearse for a month or two to get ready for their tour. And I guess they had heard us just through the grapevine or on the radio or, or whatever. And we got the invite to come down and do the little warm-up show that they do before they launch a tour. They go play a club. Oh yeah. They, oh, wow. And so they're like, come and open this show. It's at a place called the Phoenix. It only holds about 1,100 people. And we're like, yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll be there. And it was the coolest thing ever. Cause I've seen the stones in a stadium and in an arena, mm-hmm. but we like, we like loaded in our gear onto the floor while they were like feet away rehearsing on stage, you know? And then, uh, you know, we were like sharing a dressing room and they were like, we saw them hanging outside stage while we were playing and checking us out. And we got to meet them and hang out with them. And, you know, like really cool stuff, you know, like, again, I don't even think I could have dreamed of that when I was 16. Yeah. That's, that's, that's why I was asking. Like, I, I can't imagine like when you're, when you're looking around at your brother and, and, uh, you realize the stones are waiting off backstage to come on next. You've just got to be like, yeah, it was pretty cool. This, this is way more (laughs) than I could have hoped for. I say you guys also backed, uh, Springsteen. I saw one night. Yeah. Yeah. We played with Springsteen. That was a much bigger show. That was for about 30,000 people. That was an outdoor thing. Um, again, we opened for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had talked to our road manager. Sometimes those big, big, big shows, like one of the fun things about doing the stones was it was at a club, but sometimes when you're at a big show and it's on a festival site, you might never cross paths with the headliner. Like you, he'll be having his entourage and security over here and you're stationed miles away over here. Um, so we just told our road manager, we're like, Hey, listen, if there's any chance to get to say hi to Bruce, we, we would love the opportunity. And he sort of asked their road manager and he said, okay, well, you're going to meet like side stage before he goes on and you guys are going to get to say hi, a little photo op. And we're like, great. Sounds great. Um, so we get to that and Bruce comes out of his little golf cart and he's getting ready to take the stage. And we're, he's like, Hey, what are you guys doing? Where are you from? And like, what's up? And how's what's, what's it like around here? We are on the East coast where we grew up and, all kinds of friendly chit chat. The, ca- the cameras are going off. And then right before he turns around to go on stage, he goes, you guys know twist and shout. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Three chords. We got it. Yeah. No twist and shout. He's like, well, I'm doing it in the encore. Why don't you all come back up with me and do it, do it on stage with me. And we're like, yeah, fucking absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. The boss. Um, and uh, so like three hours went by because legendarily the yeah. streaming play really long shows. And we were like, really trying to moderate our alcohol intake. We were already like pretty steadily buzzed from our show and our after show. And we're like, okay, switch into water for a couple of hours. 
because um, we didn't want to get up there and like fall on fucking little Steven. Yeah. <laughs> so no, we kept it together. It's on YouTube. The, the version went on for like 13 minutes. Oh, wow. Like, uh, it just, every time he thought it was over, it'd be like, whoa, dude, dude, boy. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, totally. Another kind of dream come true moment for sure. It's wild. That's an amazing story, but I, like, I think an even uh, better story, like the power move when he asked if you wanted to join him would have been like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> I'm not cool enough for that, man. I, I want no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be either. You know, it's wild that every person I know or who I talk to who has interacted with Bruce Springsteen, the first thing they say about the interaction is he always asks, "How are you? What's it like? What you know?" Like yeah. he genuinely cares about any human he's interacting. I. I, I met him once at a sh- at a bar show of all places in Red. So I'm I'm in, I, I live in Asbury Park. Oh yeah, and, we played it. And uh, you uh, what the pony? We played the stone pony. Is and that the saint? It, is the saint there too? The saint. Oh, I've done un- comedy there. I've done. Yeah, we've done we've done the saint. The saint, unfortunately, I was just reading yesterday is they, they've been on life support since COVID. Yeah. Rough um, little joint too, right? Yes. Like a little like rough edge. Oh yeah, little, yeah. Like almost looks like a punk bar. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I so I met him at a bar show in Red Bank. Like he just happened to be there, uh, like minutes before the show started, and he was talking to all the comics, and everybody did like everybody played it right. Like nobody was like, Oh my God, Bruce, I'm your biggest fan. Nobody was talking to him about music. He yeah. like Max, like you said, he was asking about us. So we were like, yeah, we're the comedians. And then he was like, Oh my God, I'm such a huge stand up fan. I, I love comedy. He started yeah. talking. He started talking about his favorite comic. You know, it was like Lenny Bruce. Cause the first amendment and all that. And, um, then he was like, when are you guys performing? And we're like, oh, the show starts in like 10 minutes. He was like, oh, cool. Maybe I'll stick around and watch. I was like, holy shit. I'm about to That's perform cool. for Springsteen. And I was up first. So I was like, even if I walk him, like even if I'm so bad that he leaves, I can still say I perform for him. Yeah, yeah. And then some open mic comic pulled his phone out, was like, Bruce, I hate to ask, but can I get a picture with you? And then you just you saw him deflate. You saw his uh, body language yeah. change. Well, that's normally an open invitation for like every other asshole with a phone, which Ex- is yeah. which asshole. is exactly what happened. Because the minute this dude said that, ten other fun- and I knew I was like, "Fuck, there yeah. goes my chance." And he was- wonders if that's like a tactic. I, I'm, I'm, he is seems like a genuinely curious person and like a genuinely good person. And he actually the photo that we got that like Live Nation the promoters took. He, he it, they got it, it. He signed it and sent it to us, like to the truce. Thanks for doing the show, Bruce Springsteen. I still have it at my house. Like he, that's like an above and beyond thing that like yeah. nobody has to do. Right. Nobody yeah. has to do that. Um, but I also think that maybe like just the, it's like a disarming tactic, just to be like, if you're all like surrounded by security, like we need a path straight through to the washrooms. Like he, Bruce is here. Like and it's just like kind of like amps people into that celebrity. Right. Like, state of mind right. like you know like oh my god there they are whatever the hell just to be like a dude at the bar with a beer being like what do you do it like just sort of disarms it like takes all that weirdness out of the situation yeah, I just yeah. maybe that's like his tactic kind of yeah. thing too. It, 
It's got to be. But can you imagine being a comedian? You meet Bruce Springsteen and he's like, yeah, I love a lot of comedy. And then he just says, like, yeah, I'm a big Brendan Schaub fan. You're just like, <laughs> oh, God damn it. I love Dane Cook. <laughs> <laughs> that carrot top, you know, he's real good. Him and Jeff Dunham, I love him. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. I got to see George Carlin before he died. I'm oh, sure wow. Seen him too, but. He and he he heckled me and my now wife, then girlfriend, and my ex drummer. We were we were we bought like nosebleeds at this theater in Toronto, the Soft Seat Theater, which holds like three thousand people. It was on his last tour, I guess. And uh, we know we were like in the balcony. We noticed that there was like three empty seats, and we're like, "Can we go get those seats? They're right in the front row." But like, they were clearly some kind of season ticket person that was a no show. And the, the the security guy's like, "You can go, but you have to wait till he starts in case." These people show up. Right. So he starts and we're like, now's our chance. And we like go down. Of course, we're the assholes coming in late now. And uh, he kind of like distracted him. He's like, oh, no, he's like, he stopped the whole show. He's like, oh, no, 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 never mind. Never mind. These, these people were just, uh, you know what they were doing? They were all taking a shit. And like, he, like everybody starts laughing and he's, uh, you know, so we're like we got heckled by George Carlin. I know, I know the audience is supposed to be the heckling. What do you call it when a comedian does it to the audience? Is it crowd also- work? You got yeah, crowd, like work. crowd work. Yeah, we, we got we got worked by Carlin, and he got a laugh out of it. So. Yeah, unless you're unless you're uh, you know posting something on TikTok, and then you would just say comedian owns people walking in. That's yeah, always exactly. like the thing. Yeah. Comedian God, I wish, destroys. I wish we all had smartphones then, because that would have been a funny thing. If somebody had recorded it, <laughs> yeah, I would have loved to sure. have it for posterity, and I would have totally posted it with like got owned by Carlin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Comedian destroys me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, right. I, I, I have a Go quick ahead. question. Uh, you also in, I think it was 2005. If I read correctly, you guys opened for Robert plant on a yeah. Canadian tour. We did a tour. That was arena tour. That was like, we'd like 10 or, 10 or 11 shows. Um, yeah, all arenas, all sold out. It was really great. And he was a very personable person, you know, like he, the first day, our first show was in Montreal and it was at like the Bell Center where the Montreal Canadians play. But my brother and I got pulled away to do press. So we missed sound checks. We were out doing like, uh, you know, radio, television interviews, whatever. Yeah. And on the very first day at the very first sound check, Robert comes to this, our sound check to like welcome everybody to the tour shake hands and talk and we weren't even there and we're like if oh, that was man. our if that was our chance we're like we're gonna be pretty pissed but it turns out that was like a daily occurrence he just was oh, very great. very personable he would come to our dressing room and he was looking for whiskey one night and wondering if we had any other times he just wanted to reminisce and one time he was like we were reading like a music rag and he's peering over our shoulder going like oh what's this system of a down uh, what, what can you tell me about <laughs> these guys you know uh so he's just genuinely curious and and a, and a good guy and like as far as that ilk of musician, like never really stopped growing. Like he has that in common with Jeff Beck. Like he, he's never really stopped evolving as a artist, you know, no. like, I mean, some of his later period stuff is some of his, his I, I was just going to say the, the work that he's doing now, I think is the best work he's done as a solo artist. Yeah. Uh, like these, I agree. And, and the I, band I is the band's amazing. Yeah. And there's a reason why he doesn't want to put Zeppelin back together. A, it's the most demanding job in rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to sing those songs and be, he's got no reason to, you know, he's, he's, he's making great stuff. You know, he's like, he's staying inspired. He doesn't have to go like do this acrobatic vocal thing. Like he's 25 anymore. Um, so yeah, I think he's in a good place. Yeah. 
Um, I saw him. I saw him at the Garden open for the Who a bunch of years ago. It was, I think it was like right after John Entwistle died, and um, it was like I, I was shocked at how good he still sounded and how the garden wasn't completely full. Like it, it, it's like you're at the who fucking yeah. Robert plant is opening. Yeah. And it it's was, a, I was yeah, like, it, a, it did half the people not read their ticket. <laughs> it's just not a great slot. You know, like as much as I like playing in arenas, um, it's it, it's just early, right? Yeah. So if the doors are at eight, you're probably on at seven thirty. Sorry, doors are at seven. You're probably on at seven thirty or eight. And like most people, whether you're going to a football game or whether you're going to a baseball game, they're still waiting in line for a beer. You know, it's just it's not a timing wise, it's not a great slot. Yeah. But you know, but who would? I, I, but I'm with you. I, I'd be there. I'd be running through the doors that game yes. to, to oh, try yeah. to catch him. But. Yeah, it it's great to see like when musicians just continue to keep growing and changing things. Like I'm a huge Dylan fan, and My favorite. Yeah, within the last you know ten fifteen years, he's put out multiple great albums. Even like you know the cover albums that he'd put out, they were fantastic. The Sinatra albums were really good. Yeah, and like I love going to see him live. And you know, the first time I saw him, I saw him at Bethel Arts Center, I think in two thousand eleven, and. You know, you you go there and you get nervous because you always the buzz is that, oh, yeah, you go there. You don't even know what he's singing. You yeah. can't understand him. But you go there and you realize, like, no, you can understand what he's singing. He just switches the arrangements of every song because he's been doing it for 60 years. Yeah. And it's a way to, like, breathe new life into classics, but also perform new songs. I I'm with you, man. And I've seen him like six times in his modern era. Obviously mm-hmm. uh, my first time seeing him was 1997, but time out of mind. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, That's my favorite. I've That's seen my it, favorite. I've seen every time I can get a chance since. So I've seen him in many different environments. I, I'm much more into him playing his latest stuff. You know, yeah, like yeah. Um, if he wants to rearrange just like a woman or Mr. Tambourine man and do it differently. Fine. I, I love those recordings. But I want to hear him play his latest record. Yeah. I just think it's going to be, you're going to get the best Dylan yep. in those yeah. moments, you know, but I also think Dylan put out the first and best piece of like pandemic art. Um, did you guys listen to murder most foul when it came out? Yeah. Yes. Like, that was, was incredible. Like, if it was recorded long before the pandemic, but if, if when you choose to release something as part of the art, then he like, he nailed that. Like he, he put on a song about really the death of America. Maybe yeah. like, I was like, what is he talking about? Like, it's all these pop culture things that are like done, you know? And like, or is it done? I don't know. It was very heavy. And, it, and he, what a time to put out a 20 minute song when all we're doing yeah, is yes. sitting around. I was yeah. like, this guy, as if he, you know, needed another inspired artistic moment, just hit another one out of the park. It was, it was like Dylan's American pie moment. Yeah. Only much more, I don't but want to say sinister. Real. Yeah. More it felt like no, a funeral march yeah. for like, he's talking about the Wolfman and like, he's quoting Eagles songs and like all this great American pop history and just plain history almost singing as if he's singing it at a funeral you know what i mean like it was just really heavy i loved it yeah yeah it was incredible so good so this is called i love rock and roll this podcast right so two comedians that come uh, you're not the normal no i'm not the normal co-host but i fill in every now and then is the other co-host also a stand-up yes 
So you guys get together, but you talk mostly rock and roll. We we talk. So we'll do. We, we'll either have musicians uh, like yourself on. We'll just interview them about their career, or we'll bring in friend you know comedian friends or we've had some actors on you know like just people in the entertainment industry and we'll tell them like oh pick a pick a subject you're like what band could you talk about for an hour i did the beach boys and charles manson because i was living in la at the time and i would hike around spawn ranch area like because it was 15 minutes from my house so yeah oh it's so creepy yeah, it really is. And yeah. when you go there, when you go to the actual place, there is a weird vibe. In what that. is it? What is it now? Is it just a worn down it's, ranch? No, it's so it burned down a couple of years after uh, everything happened, I think in like 72. But it's in this uh, place called Santa Susana Park. And I would go hike there and because uh, it's right in the valley. It's like 15 minutes from my uh, where I was living at the time. And you go to where like there's that one. Uh, I forget the magazine. Maybe it was like, a, I don't know, Time magazine or Life magazine. And there's a picture of some of the Manson family like sitting in this cave where there it's like an infamous uh, photo. Yeah, yeah. I think I've and seen you it. you go there and you see the cave and then like there's a rock that he used to sit on and sing his shitty songs to like, <laughs> you know, to the family and you see the rock there and there's a tree that they all used to shoot up and it's like still has bullet holes in it. It's really like a creepy, a creepy part. And even just like going over to like, you know, Dennis Wilson's house or, you know, where the uh, Sharon Tate murders happened, yeah. you know, it's like a real weird vibe, which is, is that also, how, is that how it's still there? Like Cielo uh, Drive? It is. There? Well, not the original one. It was like torn down. I think after Trent Reznor rented it out and recorded Downward record Spiral there. there. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, they tore it down and then they built like this huge mansion, like this really ridiculously like stereotypically L.A. mansion. Uh, and the owner of that house now is Jeff Franklin, creator of Full House. He lives there. Wow. Yeah. And I remember uh, hearing a story on a podcast where Bob Saget said he went there for a party and uh, they were doing karaoke and he went up there and sang Helter Skelter, which I thought was (laughs) pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Manson story, uh, it's it's a weird one, man. It's like the dangers of delusion. He was so deluded. I mean, like, fuck. Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) But I loved what Tarantino did. I, I thought oh, that was, yeah, it was, it was really, so that was amazing. And the use of music. I mean, it's always been one of his fortes, but like that brought back, he, he steered away from all the obvious choices yes. with the exception of maybe there was a Simon and Garfunkel song in there, but, yeah. but everything, everything else was not like deep purples hush and, and like yeah. all these songs Paul that, revere and the Raiders totally places you in that time without yeah. it being like the obvious yeah. song, you know? Yep. That must be the funnest job in the world. Eh? His music placer. Yes. And it's, yeah, I, I would, I would think any, I'm, I'm so like any show or movie I watch, I've got my phone in hand. And the minute I hear a song that I don't know, yeah, I'm Shazam. I Shazam. Cause I'm so curious. Like how did, yeah. why did they pick this song? Sometimes it's so obvious. Sometimes it's just right there in the title. Yeah. And, yeah. and I find like, I do wonder in his case, and I, maybe he's explained this on a podcast. I should look it up, but like, is he just like, I need this vibe now go find it person that does this or team that does this. He does. Or is, ha- it, or is it just like, it has to be hush. Like, does he just know it has to be the, like, you know what I mean? Like, or is so, it a probably mix of both. 
I think he said that like he has obviously a huge record collection and he buys records everywhere he goes. And he said that sometimes he'll be listening to a record, hear a song, and then he starts imagining in his mind like a scene, like an opening scene. He said that's how he comes up with most of his movies is he'll be listening to music, hear or like have a scene start to open like same thing with kill bill when he uh hears nancy sinatra bang Mm -hmm. bang right and you have that scene where it's opening up with bill shooting the bride in the head for me so we have a bus there's certain movies that become bus movies like front lounge of the bus everybody up we're watching this tonight or it's day off or watching in the afternoon while we roll down the highway and certain movies have occupied that space like for just purely ironic reasons con air (laughs) Uh, purely like shithead comedy reasons mcgruber uh oh underrated very underrated death proof and that's an underrated quint death proof is so obsessed with death proof very underrated she does the strip tease to uh she's a red bandana plays a blues piano down in mexico like jesus christ that's like a like a perfect scene and what a perfect song and you know, and to your point about Shazam, like we we do live in a golden era of discovery because you don't have to sit around and be like, I may never hear that again, or I have to watch this movie to the end of the credits to figure out who it was. Yeah. You know, like these these songs are gonna like stay alive for a really long time, also because of how we consume shit. Just to bring it back to an earlier point. Yeah. But anyway, those those that scene in Death Proof just kills me. I I love that you said that because I uh, up until a minute ago I would have gone to my grave thinking I was the only person that loved Death Proof. I was like, Amazing. I don't have people, in, and in any time you ever see Tarantino's movies ranked, yeah. uh, it's always in last. Yeah, yeah I'm like, I, Kurt Russell was so fucking sinister in that movie. Sinister and hilarious. Yes. So like, Kurt, it was like a subtly comedic performance. So like, you know, when she asks him what he do, what he does, he's like super serious at the bar and he goes, I'm not a cowboy. She's like, what, what about you, cowboy? He goes like, I'm not a cowboy. Like, dead serious. And he goes, I'm a stuntman. And then suddenly he's like, it's like really light again, you know? And he's like, and then when they actually do attack him, he cries like a little yes. girl. Like, yeah. He's like, yeah. oh no. Like yeah. that's yeah. like part of his role as like a badass, you yeah. know? Like I thought that was a killer. I mean, Quentin always said he was a comedy movie maker. You know, I guess what they said that nobody got right about Pulp Fiction is it's a comedy. Oh, they're hilarious. All his movies. They're hilarious. Yeah, all his would movies give a, are hilarious. Would you give a guy a foot massage? Fuck you. <laughs> you know, it's killer. All right. Well, listen, John, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, um, let me uh, let me give some of your dates sure. so people can go see the trues. Uh, January 24th, Boston, Brighton Music Hall. Uh, we mentioned New York City, Wednesday, the 25th, City Winery. One of the uh, one of the coolest rooms to to see a concert i want to do they're they're starting to do stand-up in that room and i'm dying to do it cool. um but yeah you're the, i don't have you been there before we we were at the old location oh, okay. moved it uptown, right? yep. yeah yeah the 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 loft upstairs is is one of the coolest places to see a band uh january 27th buffalo town ballroom 28. that's a great room if you ever get a chance to play it's we, that's one of the rooms we played many, many times. It's so close to Canada, but yeah, it's a killer room. Um, 28th, Clayton, New York, the Opera House. 29th in Philly at Milk Boy. And you can see them uh, January 31st at the House of Blues in Cleveland. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the plug and thanks for having me on. 
Yes, and where and where can people find you if if uh, your your socials if they want to give you a follow? If you Google, if you Google the Trues, which is T R E W S, we're the first return, and we're on Instagram and Twitter, and we have a, a website. The only thing you might get if you scroll down far enough is Russell Brand decided <laughs> to steal our name for a short time uh, and and run like a True News thing. But anyway, we're we're above him again. It took us a while. We got back up there. The algorithm is favoring us once good. again. <laughs> right, good. All right, Max, where can uh, where can people find you? Got any dates coming up you want to plug? All social media at Max Antonucci. That's my name. And uh, next week, I run a show that Ken Krantz was supposed to be on, but <laughs> that, he, uh, that I just canceled on. <laughs> he just canceled on a few days ago. Uh, it's at a uh, Fox and Crow in Jersey City. Uh, it's called Tall Tales. It's a stand up and storytelling show. It's a lot of fun. Had a lot of good names on there. Ken was supposed to do it, but he backed out because he's going to see uh, some, uh, some kid band. <laughs> not, I think. I don't not, know. <laughs> not quite. But um, and uh, you could come see me uh Saturday, February 4th, I'll be in uh, Boca Raton, Raton, Florida, at um, the Meisner Cultural Center with a great Canadian comedian, uh, Bonnie McFarlane. Cool. All right. Uh, thanks, guys. Good luck at your shows. So You too. So nice to meet you, John. Yeah, you too. Nice to meet you, Max. And Ken, thanks for having me. Thank you so uh, much. And uh, we'll see you next week. 